Hi, and welcome to episode eight of the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracey. In this series, we hear the fascinating stories of doctors who are stepping off the beaten path in their professional and or personal lives. Um, it's been a while since our last episode. Um, in the interim, of course, we've had the CCIM conference up on the Gold Coast. It was so great, actually, to see um, so many of you CCIMers up there um, having a great time. It was a, a great celebration and, and showcase of the, the kinds of uh, creative and innovative uh, medical careers that, that we celebrate on this on this podcast. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to be up there and record a series of interviews on the sidelines of that event for this series. Um, so another huge thanks to everyone who gave up their time for me. Uh, we'll be releasing those conversations in the coming weeks and months, so uh, keep an eye out for those. This episode is one of those interviews that we did at the conference. It's, um, it's a bit of a different one, though, um, in that it was actually recorded live on stage as part of the Sunday morning breakfast session. It was our first ever live recorded podcast and based on the incredible turnout and response in the day, it's something we'll hopefully might get the chance to do uh, a little bit more in the future. Um, our guest, of course, was the former GP, Philip Nitschke. Um, of course, Philip has obviously been a quite a polarising figure, um, especially in the medical community for his advocacy of legalised voluntary euthanasia. Uh, as the founder of Exit International, he was recently in Australia to present a series of information sessions on end-of-life choices. And many of you uh, may have seen that the, the fresh debate and, and, and controversy at times uh, that, that tour has sparked along the way. Um, it also coincided with uh, Victoria in June becoming the first state in Australia to, to legalise voluntary euthanasia and with Western Australian lawmakers uh, set to potentially follow suit. It's kind of it's quite an interesting time to, to have a chat with, with him. Uh, regardless of where you stand on the issue of voluntary euthanasia and the role of doctors in that sphere, Philip is an intriguing character. Um, his personal story is incredibly fascinating. Uh, our conversation, uh, he spoke about what it's like to ultimately give up a medical career for a cause that uh, he believes in very deeply. Um, and given the role of doctors in, in so many other current debates around social issues like climate change and asylum seeker refugee health, I thought it was an incredibly timely opportunity to hear about what it's like to combine medicine and social advocacy um, and to hear firsthand about the personal and professional risks uh, that are uh, often involved. Um, so without further ado, here it is. I hope you enjoyed this episode, my chat with Philip Nitschke. Thank you again, everyone. Yeah, as Amandeep said, for, for everyone for making it out so early on a Sunday morning. Um, before we do kick off, I just wanted to take a moment to respectfully uh, acknowledge the Yugambe uh, people, uh, the traditional owners of the land in which we're, we're meeting today, and to respect uh, their elders past and present, to, and also to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that might be here today. I just want to thank all of you um, again for making it, and of course our guest, Philip. Um, of course, we're here today because, um, as we all know, this is a celebration, I guess, of, of doctors who are doing, uh, carving out their own creative paths, whether it's professionally or in their personal or public lives. I think Philip definitely ticks all of those boxes. Um, you've become known, obviously, best probably for your work as an advocate for legalised voluntary euthanasia. I think most people in the room would have a general awareness of what that journey has meant for you mm -hmm. um, and what that's included and in, in, in how that ultimately led to you taking a decision to, to end your medical career. Yeah. Um, 
before I should say, I've just skipped straight over that point that Ranjit was saying, saying before. Philip and I are gonna have a bit of a chat about all a lot of those issues and, and some of the stuff that perhaps led up to that prior. You can ask questions via slido.com if you just go to the website slido.com, use the hashtag CCIM2019 CCIM um, and just the, that will be, um, questions will come up on screen. I actually can't see those screens because of the speakers that might be in the way. I'm not sure if we're able to move those slightly just so we can see those. Can, can you see that, Philip? Yep, I think definitely. Oh, you're the one that needs to answer them, so yeah. that'll work okay. <coughs> I wanted to start, though, by rewinding past all that, the, 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 the euthanasia stuff for now, um, because your commitment to social justice causes um, has quite a backstory, quite an interesting one, starting, I guess, with your, your student activist days protesting mm. the Vietnam War, um, and then later, when, when you spent time living, a lot of time living um, in the Northern Territory and working with Vincent Lingari yeah. um, on issues around Aboriginal land rights. I just wonder if we could talk a bit about how those early experiences um, perhaps shaped you or, or, or might have shaped your trajectory in, in, in later life, and perhaps starting with the Vietnam War and, and your experiences and how that affected you. Yeah, I think that uh, the Vietnam experience, I guess it's interesting now because we're all getting very interested in the fact that it's the 50th anniversary of of 1969 and all of the uh, issues that took place at that time were coming back in quite a strong way. It reminds me, of course, of those early times when, as a student, uh, the thing, the main issue that was pressing and worrying everyone on campus was the fact that we were involved in this war. There was the issue of conscription. We were finding ourselves as students there having to face the ballot as to whether or not we were going to be conscripted. Numbers of my friends uh, lost out on that ballot and found themselves having to defer by going on and doing extra courses at university to try and defer this inevitable uh, inevitable decision to find themselves over in Vietnam. And of course, well, it seemed to me that it was, a, it seemed to most of us, it was a stupid war that we were involved in that we didn't want to be part of. And yet we were caught up in it. And so the thing to do about it was to try and change that. And we became involved in the moratorium protest to try and draw enough attention on these issues to get the government to change its policy. It was a thankless sort of a task, I guess. We didn't have much success until finally, of course, with the change of government, the Australia reversed its policy. But those commitments to, I think, pacifist principles, it seems very strong to me, and they still do to this day. It wasn't just Vietnam, it was the question of nuclear armaments, uh, the fact that we were involved in nuclear testing. There was nuclear testing going on anyway in the Pacific at the time. The French were upsetting us. There's a lot of issues we felt that really weren't compatible with human existence, actually, at the time. And one got caught up in that. And when I finally found out, as I went on further and further in my uh, early university years, I was doing science, I was interested in physics. I went on later to do my uh, research work in physics. And the final thing, I think, came when I discovered that some of the research in my physics that I was doing was part of the, part of the American war machine. In other words, some of the funding of the research that I was doing was coming through from military background. And I mean, I was involved in the development of, of lasers and use of lasers uh, and their applications. And I hadn't, of course, realized that I was being funded in that way. And that was the final straw. I mean, I finished the PhD, but I was so jaded by that stage of the whole experience that I decided then to do something what I thought was socially relevant or more socially relevant because the whole apartheid issue was coming in very strong. There was the sure. Springbok tours that were upsetting people. And of course, I was finding out that the situation in Aboriginal situation in our country wasn't much different to the situation that we were getting upset about in South Africa. So 
when the opportunity came, and it came in campus when uh, we heard about the land, um, the issue of land rights in the Northern Territory, the very interesting event that took place when the Gurindji people walked off the cattle station at uh, Nesby Station at Wave Hill and said, this is our land. Uh, the rest of Australia watched on at something that was happening up in the north, but then elders of that Gurindji tribe travelled down to campuses to try and get students interested in what was happening up there, and I was just totally taken aback by this, and I thought, this is something that really needs to be done. Then I found that they were looking for someone to go up there and, and work, initially as a gardener. I hadn't done much gardening. I think it was a bit of an unusually, unusual thing, but I thought if I'd go up there and start trying to garden, that might be helpful, but that's how I got involved. So I effectively finished off the PhD, but I didn't go down that path then of seeking employment. It was a big issue then. You could, if you're getting employment after you finished your PhD was a big thing, but I just said no, and I went straight up to the Northern Territory, and more or less remained there ever since until I, uh, until I left the medical profession and headed overseas in this last few years. So the Territory's effectively been my home, but started off with that commitment to, or concern about, and seeing what I could do, in fact, to try and make it a little easier uh, for the situation up in in Wave Hill and Wadi Creek and Dugarugga as it's now called, but I was exposed there conditions that I had never dreamed of. Conditions are just horrific. The, the uh, social conditions, and the health conditions, I walked into a situation where I had no idea and found myself confronted with uh, a situation which really had needed to change. I couldn't, all, all as I was, was the lit effectively the literate white. There was something like 200 people on that camp and I was the person who could speak English. And so uh, they'd have the morning meetings and Vincent Lingiari with the people would gather around to try and work out what to do with the pile of mail that had been delivered off the twice weekly mail planes from Canberra, trying to do something about this problem for the, for the federal government at the time. Aboriginals saying, this is our land, what are you gonna do about it? So my role was really as the literate white. I would translate everything from the government the elders would sit around and dictate an answer back and I'd write that down and send it off back to Canberra. And that went on for about two years mm. uh, until in the end it really was the hardest job I think I've ever had. Where did that sense of conviction come from, that desire to speak when you saw it, see an injustice um, being perpetuated? Where, or perpetrated, where, where did that desire to stand up right, and you know, stand up for, for what you believe is right come from? Is that something that, that came earlier than, or was it you know, a product of the 60s at the time? I don't really, I don't know. I mean, I think there was just a, seeing people in circumstances which were so much worse than what I'd been born into, it was enough, I think, to, to make anyone feel uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable with what I was seeing. I was uncomfortable it was happening in my name, in a sense, in my country. The same way as issues that are happening in my country that is Australia now make me feel uncomfortable. I don't like what I'm seeing going on around me. I think it's, it's inhumane, it's not fair, it's not equitable. And, uh, and I think we should do what we can to try and even out some of this. But at the time, I just didn't want this going on in my name and I thought I should be doing what I can. Born into a, relative, into a privileged background, mm. was privileged enough to have the advantages of this education and chances I thought it was at least I could do was to try and even out some of those issues. As you touched on a moment ago, you came to medicine later in life. Some people might not realise that given yeah, the profile and, and things get lost in, in, in all of the headlines that do get written about you. Um, you you finished your degree in your mid-30s, I believe, and... Yes, well, I went back and did medicine as a geriatric student, so to mm. speak, and, <laughs> uh, uh, but I'd always wanted to. I mean, I'd always wanted to do medicine. I was fascinated by medicine. When I went and did... I went 
when I came through high school years, uh, in uh, the time was you said, oh, well, if you were going to go to university, and very few people did, you either did an arts course or you did a science course. And I was good at science, so I did a science course. And I hadn't even thought of, and certainly no one suggested the idea that maybe you could even do medicine. It was just no one had, not in the schools that I went through, had talked about that. When I went and spent my first year at Adelaide University there, and I started to meet people who were doing medicine, I thought, oh, hell, I would have liked to have done that. I really would have wanted to do that. I got myself, I had a look over in the medical school, and I was talking, got a friend who was doing medicine, and I tried to change, and it was always too difficult. I tried again when I started my PhD. I started, see, could I make that change? No, it was almost too hard. And then finally, when it was, when I, finally then when I decided after uh, <coughs> that, uh, uh, working after some time in the Northern Territory, I had a bad accident. By that stage, I was working in national parks and wildlife. You're a ranger at that point. That's right. Yes. I spent several a number of years working in national parks and wildlife in Central Australia as a ranger, which was, as I said, the best job in the world. We start, everyone would tell you a hundred times a day, you must have the best job in the world. But as you're out there cleaning barbecue plates and pit <laughs> toilets, it didn't actually <laughs> feel like that. Less. But of course, the whole skippy thing had started off and where it had been a low paid and underwanted job when I got the job as a ranger, by the time I left it, everyone wanted those jobs. But I had a bad accident. I broke my foot, crushed my heel in a, in a fall that took place up in Darwin. Right. The writing was on the wall and I had to go and do something else. I thought, now's the last chance. I'll, the last roll of the dice, I was 35, I'll see if I can go back and do medicine. Applied all over the place to every medical school I could find and they all said, go away because you're not a West Australian or a South Australian. And I said, but I'm in the Territory and there's no medical school up here. But Sydney accepted me as a, as a sort of mature age student, as they used to colourfully describe it. Uh, and I went back and did my five years in, in Sydney with what I, in a sense, always wanted to do. And it was fab, enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I hated uh, living in Sydney, but doing medicine was something that I always wanted. And it was something that really opened up what I thought was going to be a, a great time. It didn't exactly turn out like that, but it was, it was a good start. <laughs> you, I was going to ask you about that, because obviously, the, the, given the, the often the conservative nature of the, the medical fraternity, did you ever think about whether your commitment to activism and the causes that you, you'd been involved with previously, and obviously that was an ongoing commitment for you, it wasn't something that was going to go away, did you ever think to yourself that that, that might impact on some of the, the opportunities that you might have in your career? Uh, it, it, going back and doing medicine might give me more opportunity? No, no, the, the, the idea that um, that clash between your sort of socially progressive um, work in, in, in advocating some of those issues yes. might have ended up being a clash with the, with, with the profession? No, I didn't, I didn't imagine that was going to be, uh, that it was going to occur in the way that it did. I thought that it was going to be straightforward. I must say that there was a, medical school was a very progressive environment in a sense. I mean, it, it, I hadn't met some of the more conservative aspects of the profession in mm -hmm. any really uh, confrontational way until I really, until really I finished and graduated and then I moved up to Darwin. I went to Darwin to do my interning because I, I left, uh, I did my uh, training year in Prince Alfred at, uh, in Sydney, but then I, as soon as I could, I had to do my interning. I went back up to the Northern Territory to Darwin, and then things started to started to unravel a bit because there were issues up there that mm. caused trouble uh, within the medical profession. Uh, initially, with nuclear ships, yeah. I got involved in the nuclear ships issue. There was supposedly the radiation protection officer of Darwin Hospital because of my physics background, and straight away there was trouble when uh, the uh, USS Houston decided to come in, a nuclear-powered warship decided to come into Darwin Harbour 
And there was a notice that went up on the notice board of the Darwin Hospital that all staff should receive a one-day course in how they might deal with nuclear accidents. And I thought that was just absolutely ludicrous that we're going to try and train the hospital staff on how we could deal with the possibility of a nuclear accident. The nuclear accident was supposedly something that they had to, they had to warn staff about. They installed, of course, when nuclear ships come into harbours, they have to install monitoring devices on the roofs of various buildings to make right. sure if there's any release of any radioactive material, issuing of, issuing of uh, tablets which you could take to try and deal with any sort of exposure. And the idea that I had to suddenly run around and try and organise courses for the medical staff in one day struck me as ludicrous. So I, I talked about that publicly. It went on to AM, PM, and there was a huge outcry about the fact that I'd been breaching my conditions of service in speaking publicly about it. So that was a very difficult clash. And that led, in fact, uh, and when it finally there was talk about a, medical, a strike amongst junior medical staff over the fact that I was then found I didn't have my contract renewed in the Darwin Hospital. Uh, and uh, I thought at the stage there that this was uh, this was an interesting exposure uh, to these areas, and I thought that at the time it'd be a good idea to, to the, the, the writing was on the wall. There was going to be troubles within the profession. They simply weren't able. It seemed to me there was going to be real real pressure to try and comply with the way things were going. Obviously, <coughs> we sort of move on, I guess, now to sort of the, the euthanasia um, sort of advocacy period of your life, which started um, fairly innocuously, I believe. Like, you, you would, you've, like you've said, you've written um, previously about that when you first heard about the, the, the idea of these laws being introduced in the Northern Territory, that, that legalising mm. voluntary euthanasia, that's not something you'd actually thought about previously. You sort of heard it on the radio. sounded like a fairly straightforward, common sense sort of an idea. And it wasn't until later that you became involved when, you, when, when there was that pushback from the, from the profession that you sort of alluded to that, that you've become aware that that might have later become an issue. Yeah, people often ask me, why did you get involved in the issue? Did you have some sort of experience in the past of someone you know of it ha having a horrific death or something of that nature? That wasn't really the case. I really did become involved politically because as, as you explained there, I mean, I was, at this stage, I'd left the Darwin Hospital. I was trying to uh, work out some sort of way of surviving in Darwin as a, as a junior doctor doing various various uh, locums around the place, but uh, I was heard about it on the radio, in fact. I was, uh, I'd been working doing a night, night medical shift and I came home, heard it on the radio that there was to be a new law about the fact that elderly people or terminally ill people could receive lawful help from a doctor to die. And I must say the E word, euthanasia, I don't think it had even been mentioned at Sydney Medical School uh, in my entire course there. Um, certainly it was something that hadn't really occurred to me. The work I was doing predominantly was involved in drug and alcohol rehabilitation. I didn't have an elderly patient since I didn't have too many who were, who were dying or certainly not trying to die. There's a number of people who were accidentally doing that. But uh, I just thought it was a good idea and thought, oh, that's good, and rolled over and went back to sleep. And it wasn't until the next... And it was fact, really, it was in a week. When as soon as that news broke, the pushback was immediate and, and fierce. Initially from the medical profession, from the Australian Medical Association, came out and said there's not a doctor in the Territory who will have anything to do with such a law. And I thought, that's funny. I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and then the church weighed in, in yep. a big way too. Sure. And so the two combined, and they were saying, you're not going to get this law. And I just thought, well, that's ridiculous. So I ran around then trying to find other people who would support such an idea. It wasn't that easy, but we did get 20-odd doctors across the Territory to take out a full-page ad because that was starting to bite. I mean... 
the people of the Territory thought it was a great idea. <coughs> but over and over we're being told that the medical profession is saying this is not a good idea. And we're starting to say, well, the doctors should know. And they were saying it's not a good idea. So maybe they know something we don't know. And it was starting to undermine what seemed to be an overwhelming public support for this concept. And so it was coming up, this was a period when it was in for debate, it was going to go for a vote in Parliament in the Northern Territory, and we could see that the numbers were starting to slide here as people were being influenced by right. this formidable opposition from the profession. And so getting at least 20 doctors to come out and say, listen, you can't say there isn't a doctor in the Territory which will, uh, will not support this law, because here's 20 of them, mm -hmm. prepared to be public about it. And that was quite significant. Marshall Perrin was the leader of the government up there at the time, and he acknowledged the fact that that, that action and the publication of those doctors' names was significant in, in actually stemming some of, the, some of the opposition that was coming in in large amounts. And, I mean, once, and once the, 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 start, the, the campaign started to suggest that this was racist legislation, that it was actually some sort of modern variant of the poison waterhole that Aboriginal people would be being put down if they right. went into med medical institutions. That started to undermine support from the left in, in the politics too. So we were really thinking this was going to be lost and uh, it did get down right to the wire. In fact, in that, when it was finally voted on, it passed by just one vote in that very small parliament, 13 to 12. At that point, it became law in the Territory. And yes. you, that was 96, um, you, Famously at that point, and I should stop for a second and say thank you very much for the questions that are coming. We will get to those in a minute. I just want to go through a couple more things with Philip first. So in 96, voluntary euthanasia, now law in the Territory, you became the first physician in the world to administer a, a legal lethal injection, one of four, I think, that, that you um, yes. administered under those, those laws. I just, what was that period like for you? I mean, were you prepared... I guess you must have been prepared in some ways for the storm that was going to come. Well, yes. I, I mean, it, it had been a fiercely fought battle and then it passed by one vote. Then there was a six-month period when the so-called uh, regulations were developed in that period. But I knew that on the 1st of July in 1996 when that law came in, it was really kind of crunch time for me I, because I'd been involved politically. The, the politicians who I'd got to know quite well, and I mean, I hadn't been very much on side with Marshall Perrin, he was a conservative politician, but we're working together on this. And he kind of said, look, I've got you your law, now it's up to you. And I started suddenly realised I've got this law and I've got to try and make it work with all its problems. And it had a lot of problems, that legislation. But it then became my problem then to try and make it work. And so when the 1st of July came along, we knew we were going to have difficulty. In fact, the first person who tried to use that law was a taxi driver from Broken Hill named Max Bell, who said that I'm going to... He, he contacted me and said, I hear you've got a new law, I'm dying of cancer. So I flew down to Broken Hill and had a talk to him, and you could see at 20 metres he was dying of cancer. Right. And he said to me, I, I want to come up and use the law. And, I, and he said, is it, in, is it for, for me? And I said, well, you're of sound mind, and yes, you're a dying person. I think it should be exactly the sort of thing that you could make use of. And he said, all right, well, I'm going to drive my cab to Darwin. And there's a cab sitting out there. He'd been a cab driver in Broken Hills for the, most of his life. And I looked at that and I said, hell, are you really going to do that? He said, yes, I'm going to drive up there. If I die on the way, what's it matter? And he moved up there. He got up there on driving on the 1st of July. I put him into Darwin Hospital then because mm -hmm. he was extremely sick and I never thought he'd even make the trip. 
But in the hospital, I couldn't find a single doctor. I needed four. Well, I needed three. I was one. But I needed yep. three other doctors to sign the papers, and not one of them would do it. I was ringing, ringing every doctor in the territory saying, please come and see Max Bell and yep. sign his papers. And no one would. They said, well, if this law is overturned, there could be some retrospective penalty visited on us. We don't want to be involved. In the end, Max just looked at me and said, you didn't do your homework, boy. And I remember those words pretty, pretty vividly. And he signed himself out of hospital, climbed back into his cab, which, had, which was still there. Uh, he'd, we'd tried to put his house on the market in Broken Hill, but it was still hadn't sold, so he manages to drive himself all the way back. Tries to refuel at Cooper Pete, he gets out of his car and he's so weak he falls over. Someone has to pick him up and put him back in the car. Makes it all the way back to Broken Hill. His house is stripped. I flew down there. We camp on the floor in his house there in Broken Hill. And then eventually in the Broken Hill Base Hospital, he dies in all the ways he didn't want. Yep. And, that, and, and that was a failure, but it was the Four Corners depiction of that. Road to Nowhere was the name of the Four Corners show, which traced Max Bell's failure uh, that, I, that, that really changed it. It gave me the awareness of the power of the media, because when the image of Max Bell went out there on national television, the next day one of the prominent surgeons in Darwin, John Wardle, rang me up and he said, I've just seen your patient. He was one of the people I'd read, rang up and begged to come in and sign the papers. He said, I've just seen your patient on television and I feel like shit. He said, if it happens again, let me know. And so f five weeks later, it did happen again with Bob Denton and Wardle said, bring him in, I'll sign his papers. And so then we could see there was a breakthrough and then the ne next breakthrough was to try and find a psychiatrist and that was damn hard. And when we finally got the four signatures together for, for Bob Dent, he became the first, as you said, person mm -hmm. to get a legal, lethal, voluntary injection ever, and that was uh, a very tense time. It was tense because of the politics and the, and the conflict going on around it, but then to try and make this happen. And so, I mean, going around to someone's place when they've set it up, the time, he said, come around on Sunday, have lunch, and I'll die at 2 o'clock. I said, this is hard. Uh, I didn't want to... Having worked hard for this idea of making this happen, the idea of giving him the lethal injection wasn't something I relished. I thought, I don't want to do this. But I accepted that I had to, and I decided then to build a machine which would allow him to press a button and the machine to deliver the drug. It was a pretty simple little machine, but it was the, the so-called deliverance machine, which right. now sits over in the London Museum. But at the same time, that allowed him to press a button, make a clear statement that he was doing it. It wasn't yep. some... No, malicious doctor. His hand. <coughs> yeah. Mm. So uh, it was a, it was a it was a difficult lunch. I went around there at Sunday to have this lunch. I had the machine I'd built. It wasn't the finest piece of engineering. I knew there were problems with it, and I was worried about that. You're on your own. Things can fail. You couldn't just say, "Let's do it tomorrow." It had decided at two o'clock he wanted to die. What was that moment like? What were those moments like immediately after for you? Immediately yeah. after the death. I immediately people said, "How did you feel when it happened?" I sat there. When, see, Bob, the thing about the machine was it also got me out of the immediate personal space and his wife, Judy, could come in. Judy was able to hold him in her arms. He, he pressed the button. The laptop computer presented him with three questions. And the last one was, do you want to die? Press this. He, he pressed the button. He pushed the machine off the side. He held his wife, Judy. And I'm sitting on the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting for this machine. It was a 15-second delay, and it started to tick as the uh, syringe driver started to move the, the barbiturate into his vein. And uh, I just remember, people said, how did you feel? Weren't you feeling like you were violating some fundamental mm. law of God? The overwhelming feeling I had 
was one of absolute relief that the machine had worked because I thought, oh right. my God, if this, if this machine fails, what am I going to do then? Because as you said, you're by yourself. Yeah. But then that immense relief when it, when it worked. And I did, of course, sense that things weren't going to be the same again after this. This was a, this was a significant moment. And it's, of course, I think the most significant moment I've been through. And I just watched as he, as he died in her arms and we sat there for about 20, 30 minutes, I suppose, with Judy holding Bob, who had died. And then she just lay him back down and I went over and confirmed that he was dead. And, uh, yeah, so life changed at that point. Probably a good point to bring in one of our first questions from the room about someone's written, that the vital work you're doing must take an emotional toll at times. I think you've just touched on... What it's, what it's like and at, at the, that real pointy end of it, but also I'm sure the lead up when you're, when you're dealing with some of these um, people who are coming to you in quite often desperate yeah. circumstances. How do you ensure your own well-being? What do you do to look after yourself? Well, I, don't, I think being involved in a, being actively involved in, a, in what I see as a cutting edge social issue is pretty therapeutic in itself. I mean, it's really good to be involved in something that, that uh, I, I enjoy doing and I like to see, I can see, you can sort of plot the changes that are taking place around the world on issues such as this. Uh, and I, I think in that sense, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the fact that there's an emotional toll, but uh, I, do, uh, I do find it a very, uh, a very um, in, in, I find it quite a good thing to be doing and I enjoy doing it. Uh, I've, got, uh, I've got strong support, uh, my, my family situation, my wife's very supportive uh, and uh, I find that I don't, I don't really see that I need, well maybe I'm missing something, but <laughs> I, I, I haven't felt the need to go off and uh, have any special kind of restorative, uh, restorative treatment or care um, and I enjoy what I'm doing. Have you, someone else is asking, have you experienced imposter syndrome along the way with, with throughout the various roles that you've played? Imposter syndrome, what yeah. do we mean by that? Did you ever feel, I guess it's um, as if you're, you're not quite cut out for it, maybe you're, you're having to sort of... Not quite cut out for... For, for... for the roles that you've been, maybe that you've either pursued or have been sort of thrust upon you? Oh, I don't, I don't know, I think I'm quite suited. I'm quite suited, I think, for the uh, political fight that's involved in the, in the euthanasia issue. And, and it has been, I mean, there are these two aspects, the politics of the issue are fierce, the, 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 the struggle to try and bring, let, bring about legislative change has been intense and uh, it goes on relentlessly and uh, also the involvement in the issue from a philosophical point of view. My own journey through this issue has changed my position considerably over the years to the point where, where I came into this believing strongly in the idea of the, the so-called medical model whereby people who were sick should get help if they qualified for the doctor to give them some assistance. That was the medical model. If you're sick enough, you qualify. But I've moved so far from that position over my experiences with the people that have come to see me to the point that now I argue that this is a fundamental human right and a right is not something you have to ask for. And so that leads me to the position of saying every rational adult should have the option of a peaceful elective death at the time of their choosing. And that's a far cry from the way that the argument is being the argument and the debate is unfurling here in Australia, which is one of the reasons I left the country. These views are quite, in many ways, unacceptable, especially with the medical profession. That's where I really ran into trouble with the medical profession in the latter years of this business. Yeah, yeah. I was going to sort of get to that in a moment. Um, first, I think 
just on that point that you raised, someone is asking around um, how how you your your thoughts on obtaining consent from people with progressive illness uh, affecting uh, affecting cognition like dementia. Yeah, dementia is the most difficult of issues, or any of the diseases. I mean, I said, simply said it's a, it's the absolute fundamental right of a person of sound mind. The question is, well, what about people that aren't of sound mind? I mean, the argument was played out in the in the early stages of the evolution of the Northern Territory law that clearly people had to know what had to know what they were doing, and so they thought, well, they've got to have so-called mental capacity. And of course, the argument was immediately run that anyone of any sort of psychiatric illness has lost mental capacity, which is clearly not true. Plenty of people are suffering and still maintain this so-called mental capacity. And uh, of course, the way they got out of it in the Northern Territory was insist on make a compulsory psychiatric examination of every person who wanted to die. And the person had to be effectively checked by a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist had to say, yes, this person knows what they're doing. Now, obviously, there are plenty of people who do have conditions where they simply don't know what they're doing and they've lost that ability. And that's the truth. That's still the situation today. And there's no easy answer to that point. In the countries around the world now, and there's many of them that have the laws not dissimilar to what we saw in the Northern Territory. I mean, Oregon came in the year after the, after the Northern Territory, and now there's a number of straight states in America, California, there's Canada, there's Holland where I now live, and there are all these countries. But the, the idea of mental capacity is always this vexed issue. So when you lose it, and you certainly can, when you lose it, what happens then? And there's no easy answer to that. I don't know anyone who feels comfortable when in these medical model examples where doctors are involved in administering either lethal injections or providing the drugs to be taken orally, who feels very comfortable about a situation where a person doesn't know what they're doing. And even the idea of getting around it by saying, what about an advanced directive, some sort of written statement that was drafted up and so you When I get to this stage. Yeah, when I get to this stage. So then you're confronted with a statement which says if I get to this stage... Who determines that they've reached that stage, yeah. Yeah, and you're confronted with a person who doesn't know what they're doing. I don't know anyone who feels comfortable about that situation. I don't know the answer to this one. Uh, My... I've, I've witnessed a lot of people uh, moving early, though. They, they decide to take this step before they get into that situation and they see what's happening to them. And I also see a lot of people who dismiss the boat, so to speak, and then they're effectively trapped. Now, maybe they're happy, they don't look happy, but no one that I know is prepared to take that any further and say this person would be better off dead. You've talked a bit there about assessing others. You're someone who has been quite um, rigorously assessed, I guess, by, by your profession, by ARPA and the medical board and, and, and these, yeah. these, as if that, that, that phrase, fit and proper person. Mm. When push finally did come to shove, though, in 2014-15, you ultimately made the decision to quite literally burn your medical registration, yeah. largely due to the, the raft of conditions that even though you... Sort of, you fought your battle and you, you sort of won, but then there was going to be a raft of yeah, conditions yeah. that were going to be applied. Did the, your professional ambition in medicine always play second fiddle to your commitment to social justice and, and these kinds of issues? I'm just I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the decision to walk away from medicine and all those years of study and training and experience and, and the impact that you know that we're having on you know, with your patients. Yeah, I didn't take the decision lightly, of course, and it was over a long, well, long period. About that intense fight with the medical board went on for about two years, I suppose. I mean, it started, I had this, uh, it started over an incident that took place with a person called Nigel Braley, uh, 
who was a person from Western Australia who had come to one of my workshops and decided on the basis of the workshop that he was going to go off and get some, get some drugs uh, and end his life. He'd made that decision. And at the workshop, we talked about how you can have, have that control and what sort of drugs do what. Now, I, no, we tend to restrict attendance at these workshops to people we say over 50. Nigel was a bit younger than that. He was 45. But he listened to the material. He went overseas. He bought drugs in Hong Kong. He brought them back to Perth and he ended his life. Now... When I was thinking about that, I thought, this is a person, as I understood it from what little I knew about him, he had attended a meeting of over 300 people, by the way, in Perth. Uh, and I didn't know much more about it, but then I was kind of confronted with the fact that he was a person who, for very, his particular reason for taking that step was he was about to go to prison for a long, long time. He had murdered two previous partners. And I said, when I was being asked about that, I said, well, it seems to me that he'd made a rational decision that it was better to be dead than to be in a West Australian prison for 30 years. Now, I said, this is a case of rational suicide, and I can see nothing wrong with rational suicide if a person makes an informed decision to take that step. When I started to talk about that publicly, that's when the medical board made this announcement that I was at risk, that these ideas were dangerous and that I was a risk to the Australian public. Now, that was a shock. I thought, now I'm being declared to be a risk to the Australian public with these views, and they use their emergency powers to deregister me. And I thought, hell, all right, so now I'm deregistered over what I thought was quite a sensible argument that there is this issue of rational suicide. Some people, for non-medical reasons, come to the conclusion that their lives are now no longer worth living. If they've made that decision, they should have the option of taking that step, is my belief. Anyway, the point was I was there deregistered. Uh, I decided that they had overstepped their mark a bit, so we went through that long and protracted period. Cost of fortune, went on for about 18 months. This is the court battle. Yep. Eventually, I won the case. And it was a big celebration. I've got my medical, <laughs> medical registration back again. Uh, but then they came in with these set of conditions that if I wanted to stay registered, and one of those conditions was the final straw. I must say, this had been exhausting, this, this uh, battle. One thing about these protracted battles is that they completely silence you. The campaign that I was interested in running, I couldn't run because I was caught up in this legal battle with APRA. Anyway, there's a final condition in which I looked at the conditions that they decided that if I complied with, I could become and stay registered, and that was that I could no longer be the author of my book that I've written with my partner, Fiona Stewart, which was this handbook on how to end your own life. Which is the peaceful pill. Yeah, the peaceful yep. pill. It had become one of the best-selling books on this issue around the world, and it had been banned in Australia by the federal government, and that's interesting, because I mean, it's the only book banned in Australia in the last 50 years, so that was quite an achievement. Uh, <laughs> the, <coughs> the federal government under <laughs> Philip Ruddock decided to reverse the decision of the so-called Independent Office of Film and Literature Classification, banned the book, but meanwhile overseas it was selling and selling well, and it was being updated all the time with new information. So the choice was you can either author your handbook or you can be a doctor, but the, the, these, there was an incompatibility with these views expressed in this book and the medical profession, according to the medical board. So that was the final straw, and I thought, well, as I said, it wasn't an impetuous decision, but I could see I really didn't fit. I couldn't see how I could fit in to the medical profession and hold views which I see as being pretty axiomatic, pretty fundamental. They came over, over a long period of time involved in this issue. I started, off, I started off in medicine believing that, yes, doctors could assess people and if they were sick enough, try to help them ease their suffering 
and legislation that allowed that was a good thing. But I was challenged over and over and over, most fundamentally by an 80-year-old from Perth who came to one of my workshops and when she asked me some questions at the end about some drugs, she said, look, I'm going to end my, I'm going to end my life in four years' time. Can you answer these questions about the drugs I've got? And I said, what, what, are you, what sort of a disease have you got, Lisette? And she said, I haven't got a disease at all. She said, in four years' time, I'll be 80, and 80 is the time to die. And I said, oh, yeah, I hear all sorts of stories, so I just <laughs> let that go. And then every time I'd go to Perth, then it was three years, then it was two years. And then she said, hurry up and answer my questions, will you? She said, I'm going to die next year, I'll be 80. And I said, for goodness sake, she was a retired academic. I said, for goodness sake, Lisette, look, I said, you're a, for goodness sake, you're not sick. I said, go on a world cruise, write a book. And she said, mind your own business. She said, <laughs> she said what, what gives you the right to tell me what to do? She said, all I want from you is technical information about drugs, she said. You've got information and I want it. What gives you the right to hold it to yourself and dole it out to people that you see fit your standards and your criteria? He said, you run around the nation seeing whether people fit your criteria of a life worth living, and if they fit your criteria, you decide you might give them the information. She said, you're the worst example of insufferable medical paternalism. So I was t totally mortified by that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, she was, she was right. Well, and I, so, so, so I basically crumpled and gave her, the, uh, gave her all the information she wanted, and on her 80th birthday, she took her own life. And that caused a, a lot, of lot of impact around the country... Then John Howard came up and said, this is a worrying aspect, this is a slippery slope. One minute we're talking about helping terminally ill, now look what's happening here. People that aren't even sick are taking this step and this is why we've got to stop this erosion of these standards. But of course what Lisette did to me was to point out that exactly what she said, that this idea of you deciding when other people's life are worth living isn't really on, you can't judge that. So. My position changed and has changed ever since. I don't even ask those questions now. If you want to die, and you're of sound mind and you're an adult, I'll support you. At least with, with, in terms of providing the information. Yeah. 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 Might be a good time to go back to one of uh, I've just another question that popped up. Do you think that the voluntary euthanasia debate would have played out today differently um, with social media and, and the outrage culture being so prominent? We, is it given that this is a relatively um, modern thing compared to when you were in the, yeah. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the in the mid 90s? Would it have been a different thing? I don't know. I, it may well have been. I mean, we use social media as playing such an important role now in the debate <laughs> as it's being carried out in other places. So it may have been played out in different ways. I mean, people are well informed. There's a lot of pushback that comes whenever new things occur. There's a lot of nasty and angry and angry and aggressive things being said. I run very, I'm very keen on using Twitter and using my, my Facebook and Instagram accounts, but I find it a very useful way of keeping the, the, keeping the issue alive and also putting out there these ideas which many people find a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, uh, worrying. It was because it's, it's the talk about the, the, the comment was about the outrage culture. It's not as if it's this polarisation in, in a debate like this, or in a, well, I guess it is a debate because we're still yet to have mm. laws changed. That polarisation is not a new thing, but it's just a different, is a, is a different, different brand of it or a different outlet yes, for I it? Yes, I suppose. I mean, uh, there, there is that sort of the division. I mean, uh, it's, it's still the case, though, that the vast majority of people, when asked, do they think a person who's suffering should be able to get lawful help from a doctor to die, overwhelming majority of people well, will yeah, say yes. Someone else is pointing out that the vote compass 
recently know that the public support is at nine, jumped to 90%. And there's, there's almost no other issue in the world that you'll get 90% support for an issue. The question really is, why hasn't that translated into legislative change? I mean, we had the law in the Northern Territory in 1996. It was the world's first law. And people said, my God, the Northern Territory is not known for progressive legislation on anything, leave alone, leave alone on this one rare instance we actually led the world. But here we are 22 years later to watch the changes in Victoria now. And Australia now sadly lags the evolution of this issue around the world. And the question is, why has it taken so long? What held it back? Uh, and why didn't uh, what happened in the Territory really lead on to what I think we will now see? There'll be a domino effect around Australia with the Victorian law. Unfortunately, the Victorian law, as it's come in, is such a restrictive piece of legislation that it really won't affect very many people. And it's a far cry from my ideal world of everybody having the option of being able to end their lives. But it's an important first step and it's finally happened and the Victorians are to be congratulated for doing it. And now we'll see all the other states, I think, hide behind the Victorian model and say, oh, well, okay, if they've got it, well, we can now have it. You'll see Queensland and Western Australia almost immediately. And of course, the restrictive residential requirements of Victoria's law, that is, you've got to be a Victorian or you've got to live in Victoria for a year mm -hmm. before you would be eligible to use that legislation. And of course, when I was talking to a group in Queensland the other day, they said, hell, if you had to go and live in Melbourne for a year, you'd want to die. And <laughs> so they, they, you can't really have those kind of restrictions or residential requirement in place. So we'll sure. see a rapid, rapid uh, movement across the nation now. You, you, were, you were sort of um, talking a little bit there about what, what some of the things are that hold back. One of them, and there's been a few questions around this, is what is the role of the, the, the medical profession in, in, is it the conservative nature of the, the, the more generally holding them back, hold, holding these laws back, I, sh I should say. Um, what, what is the role of, of, of doctors in this debate? Well, as I, will it change? <coughs> yes, I know, so my, my position has changed so much in that because I was a strong supporter of the uh, legislative mm. models that allowed doctors to provide what I saw as an essential part of final, final care for people. In other words, when people got into this extreme final situation, it seemed very appropriate for a doctor uh, to go and make sure that that period of suffering was made as comfortable as possible and recognising the person's decision to end their life and making that available. Nowadays, as I see this as something rather more fundamental, the role of the medical profession, I think, in a sense, it's a little hard. I mean, I, I, I'm supporting the idea of legislation, but I want these laws to go further. The debate that's taking place in the Netherlands, my new home, now is the first semblance we're seeing of moving it away from this medical model into the broader idea of human rights. There's the question over there about whether every person over a certain age should be issued drugs as their right. Now, that's effectively moved the medical profession really out of the issue. Well, that's one of, I was going to say, one of the things I was going to ask about, because obviously Exit International, your, your organisation, one of its key tenets is that idea, or certainly something you've written and spoken about previously, the idea that, that medicine should be, or medicine, doctors should be removed completely from yeah. death in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, that, you know, there's not necessarily going to be a doctor there when, when every single person, every single one of us drops off. That's right. So, is that possible to do, you know, I guess this is a, it's a case by case sort of a basis, but it's more, it comes down to a right. Yes, well that's right, I mean I think my, my concern about the fact is that, that initially there was such opposition for the law in the Northern Territory by the AMA in particular, but other, other professional bodies. Uh, 
it was clear that the medical profession was not comfortable with this particular legislation. But then when they decided, okay, it's passed, it's almost as if they then set out, this is the profession, to colonise it and make sure that they were in control of it. And that's what we've seen happen in Victoria. You've effectively got legislation which is controlled by the medical profession. That worries me that I think, in a sense, the profession is moving into an area where it shouldn't really be. This is part of another idea of medicalising effectively what are non-medical issues. Death is not, a men is not a medical process. You're going to die whether you've got a doctor at the bedside or not. And so this idea that you can't die really, you can't feel comfortable dying unless you've got a doctor by your side is something that I'm not comfortable with. And when people come along and say they don't feel that that's what they want and I want to make sure that things, those options are available, but we see in these models that we're seeing now and the one in Victoria is the best example we've got, the world's most conservative legislation, you've got a lot of doctors by your side if you want to go down that path. And that's effectively, I think, if you look at it, it's like the medical profession is saying, we don't want part of it. Oh, okay, we've got to have part of it, so let's run it. And so we're moving in now. And I remember a philosopher that I talked to who came across to a conference I brought here. He said, the trouble with allowing the medical profession into this vexed question of the rights to die is that once the doctors are in there, you're going to have a hell of a lot of trouble getting rid of them. And that's the point. These legislative models do enshrine the role of the medical profession in a decision-making position, and that concerns me. This is not the role of the doctors to make this decision. If there's any role of doctors, it's to provide the technical advice, the information about the drugs or whatever else, the things that they know about, but not to be involved in the decision-making process. And this idea that you've got to get 10 signatures on a piece of paper, and in Victorian case, you've even got to be signed off by the head of the Department of Health. Like, until you get that signature, you are not going to have access this business of an elective death. Now, that's an over-medicalised model, and I don't want to see that. But, as I said, it's better than nothing, but we've got a long way to go. I want to take another one of our questions from the room. Someone's asking, palliative care physicians specialise in end-of-life care. Some of them have been confronted by a voluntary euthanasia as it may challenge their ethos. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, these are no doubt conversations that you've you yeah, had. Yeah, no, it does, come up, it does come up a lot. I mean, the fourth, the fourth person to use the Northern Territory law was a woman dying of breast cancer in Sydney, uh, and she made contact. This was in 1996, 97. It was been running for about six months then, the law. She made contact. She said, I'm dying of breast cancer. Can I come up and use the Northern Territory law? And I said, from the phone conversation, this sounds... Uh, yes, I would see no reason why you can't do that. And I said, what's, what's the problem? What's the suffering? What, breast cancer? She said, well, actually, she said, I'm not suffering at all. She said, I've got the best palliative care. It's great, she said. I had a lot of, used to have a lot of trouble with nausea, a lot of trouble with pain. It's all fixed. They've done a good job. Uh, and I sort of said, mm, why do you want to come and die? And she said, because this is not living. This is not a life I want to live. This is not how I want to be. I want to be able to end my... So I thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. So I, she said, yeah, I'll have to talk to your doctor. So I talked to her palliative care doctor. And they said, what her? What's she want to come to Darwin to die for? And I said, well, she's contacted me. And they said, but she's a triumph of palliative care. We've done this, we've done this. She hasn't got a single problem. She's not a single symptom there. And I said, yes, but she doesn't feel that this is a life she wants to live. And they were really upset about the fact that she wanted to take this right. step. As it was, she did come to Darwin, and uh, and she did end her life up there. But it did draw attention to the fact that just the relief of symptoms isn't enough. It's a matter of ensuring the fact, making sure the person feels that they have have that level of control. And palliative care have often really been a significant problem on this regard because 
their background, the, uh, the whole history of palliative care has been this often strongly motivated by religious conviction, the evolution of the hospice movement, and you find a lot of that there resulting in this idea that yes, we will, we will alleviate the symptoms, but we will not go that one step further, even though there's this whole heap of hypocrisy associated with that. You're pouring drugs into people and saying, yeah, we will not give you the one drug which we know will end your life. We'll give you as much morphine that will effectively do that in some sort of slow euthanasia, mm. but not acknowledge the fact that what we're doing here. So they have not exactly, the palliative care, the palliative care profession has made it quite, has been consistently difficult in this issue. Uh, not, there are notable examples, Roger Hunt in South Australia, et cetera, et cetera. But there are plenty of examples of people who have, who have gone down that line but generally speaking, there hasn't been support from that area. Someone else is asking um, if you've had conversations with suicide survivors and how that might have affected your opinions on, on some of these issues over the years. Yeah, I, I mean, we do have, we, um, I mean, suicide survivors, we have a lot to do with people, of course, who are, are setting out to end their own lives sure. and sometimes they fail. Most memorable suicide survivor that I had a lot to do with recent <coughs> recently was David Goodall, the, uh, the 104-year-old in Perth who decided to go over to Switzerland to die. He was 104, 102, you may recall. He was still working at Edith Cowan University and the university decided he should retire because he was 102 and might fall right. over. yes, yes, yes. Uh, but uh, he attempted then, he said, after a fall, this is it, time's up, I'm 104, now's the time to go, and he tried to end his life. But he failed. I'm not sure why. He'd been a member of EXIT for 20 years and one of the things we try to do is to make sure that when people do take the step, they don't fail but he managed to mess it up somehow. And so then he was under close surveillance by the medical profession who right. said, this person is suicidal. Well, of course he's, and he was quite open about it. Of course I'm suicidal, I'm trying to suicide. Yep. I'm, 100, I'm 104, and he would say it quite bluntly, I'm 104, surely I have earned the right to say now's the time to die. And they say, yes, but you're suicidal. So <coughs> they start saying whether or not we can put him in an institution, Shall we, can he be certified, which he clearly couldn't be. His daughter had to get guardianship of him. There was a real risk that he was going to have his, uh, his freedoms curtailed, and that's when I suggested he maybe better go to Switzerland because at least get out of the country and have that have his desire to die acknowledged. So that's a case of someone who was uh, who was a failure of suicide. Most of the people we see uh, who fit that category who want to die with good reason. Now you do find, of course, plenty of people who set out to end their lives and survive and then feel immensely relieved that they failed. Mm. Um, I must say that this argument about youth suicide and how it impacts on our organisation when we're predominantly dealing with elderly people is a constant source of trouble. And the headlines in the British media last two weeks ago were about uh, teenagers accessing on the internet uh, lethal drugs for 200 pounds. Uh, and I find our organisation implicated in that whole process <laughs> of making this information available. So it's a difficult problem, uh, and we find ourselves caught up in this a lot. We try to restrict who we deal with, with elderly people, but we know there's a bleeding of the information. Now, the idea of trying to keep a society <coughs> safe, though, by keeping information restricted, I think is a foolish and naive approach. This is why they tried to ban the book. The idea seems to be if people don't know how to die or how to end their own lives, they'll never do it. It's a quaint notion. The idea that if you don't know how to die, you don't end your life, as if you'd suddenly tell people about Nembutalus, oh, I didn't know about that, let's get a bottle, swill it down, and drop in the gutter outside. I mean, as if the only reason people are alive is because they haven't, been, haven't worked out how to die. 
This is crazy notion, yet it underpins most of the policies of our governments which try to restrict information, and even with the Victorian law. They're not telling anyone what the drugs are for fear that people might learn something uh, and make use of that knowledge. And I think these approaches are ones which I'm pretty uncomfortable about. I think a healthy society is when people do know what their options are, do know about the drugs, and do know what the course the consequences of taking them will be. I wanted to ask you <coughs> today, doctors are, are finding themselves in um, uh, a whole lot of different debates on, on social issues. Some, I guess one of the, the big ones at the moment is around refugee and asylum seeker health, but there's also debates around you know, uh, gender, um, sexuality, mm. abortion, all of, uh, a lot of these things that doctors find themselves in these debates, especially when we come back to refugee and asylum seeker health, is an issue where the AMA, who you were talking about earlier, who butted heads with um, over the years, are now at the forefront, along yeah. with a lot of the colleges, yeah. in advocating for some quite vulnerable um, mm. patients. And we're seeing doctors putting themselves out there, um, trying to advocate for these people and being demonised in return by, by government officials, senior government ministers um, uh, along the way. I just wonder, given your experience um, in some of the issues you've been involved with and, and putting yourself out there as an advocate, um, what advice you'd have for, for doctors out there who, who are, are trying to get involved in, in a social area like this, whether it's whether it's asylum seeking health or anything else that they're, that they're taking a bit of a risk? Well, I might be taking a bit of a risk, but I must say I've been so heartened by what I see uh, as the doctors that have been involved in the issue of refugees. I mean, there are policies I find now that are very difficult. I feel really uncomfortable about my, my nation, Australia. And in some ways, I'm kind of glad I'm not here. I, I, I look at the issue with refugees, and it's embarrassing, and I'm ashamed of what I see taking place. And I can only welcome the fact that there are some doctors that have been making such a point over this whole issue and drawing attention to what we're doing as a society. And I would only encourage more and more people to be involved in that. And of course, there will be some personal cost, but hell, at least then I think we might head towards a society which is a little bit more, one we can feel a little bit more comfortable with. But there's so many issues uh, where I feel uncomfortable about the way our nation is now going. And I can see a role for the medical profession. The issue of climate change is something where I'd like to see more statements made, more active involvement of the profession. And I'm kind of glad to see, at least as far as the refugees issues is concerned, that you haven't found that opposition from professional bodies like the AMA in the same way that we had such trouble as far as the euthanasia issue was concerned. I'm conscious that we're starting to, to run on time. Jess, how, how much longer have we got? With Jess in the room, about 10 minutes? Sweet, all right, well, we might take a few more questions from the floor. Do you believe there is a responsibility to medical education from university and training sector to, to train uh, the emotional, social, political intelligence of our workforce? Hmm. I think most people would agree that there is. I think there is. I don't know how you do it, but yes, of course. Without? Yeah, I'm not sure how it's done, <laughs> but uh, no, it is. It, it, it certainly is. And uh, I would, I mean, I, I'm in the, the court, I I'm a little unsure about what, what actually goes on in medical schools these days, all as I can speak with any sort of knowledge about is my medical course at Sydney University in the 80s. And I don't doubt that was considerably different than it would have been if I'd gone straight into medicine when I first went to university in the 60s. Uh, and God knows what it's like now. So maybe there has been an evolution. Maybe these issues are being addressed in a way that we certainly didn't have exposure to. It was a pretty uh, 
uninspiring medical course that I went through. And as I said, I never heard the word euthanasia mentioned in the entire, entire course. And I think palliative care might have been mentioned once in the final year. It was really a very restricted area. So when I finally found it and being confronted with it uh, up in Darwin many years later, it just seemed like a good idea. And I was really surprised at the strong reaction that came from within the professional colleges. Someone else is asking, do, we think, do you think that our approach should be in initiating civil public discourse about death, liberty and law between students, doctors and the general public? Yeah, I think it's a good idea to initiate, uh, initiate these sorts of discussions. I mean, I notice with interest again with this restrictive Victorian law that doctors are not allowed to initiate the topic, uh, which just seems to be a quaint notion. I don't know how they're going to prevent, not allowed to speak using a, using a carriage service on the telephone that breaks some other federal laws. I mean, attempts to try and dampen down uh, the discussion and certainly a suggestion that uh, medical professionals aren't allowed to even initiate a talk on this issue with someone who might be their patient is really quaint notion. No, it's disappointing. Um, someone else is asking you what your strategy, your best strategies um, in overcoming resistance that may come from the community, the, the medical profession itself or from government. What's, what's, has anything worked particularly <laughs> better than the others? <laughs> no, nothing much has worked. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. Look, the best thing I did, I think, was to go uh, was to go overseas uh, five, four years ago. Um, it's it's quite a nice living over in the Netherlands uh, and looking back at the nation and seeing Australia from a distance. I think that's always worth doing. Uh, it's also important now in the Netherlands to be in an environment where these issues about the so-called rights model that everyone should have this option of ending their life is being openly discussed in a way that was seen to be such a dangerous idea when I was back here practicing in Australia. So the idea of uh, looking back at things from a distance is worth doing, uh, and I'm glad that's happened. Uh, I'm not too sure. Uh, I'm just looking at the next question. Really. Yes, I'm not too sure. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can jump to the next question if you like. Is it, which one were you looking at? Was it, this is the, the ultimate expression of self-ownership or, the, or your, your potential law degree? No, no, no potential law degree. No, I've never. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been toyed with the idea of studying law. My partner, Fiona Stewart, is a, is a lawyer. And I must say that as soon as you study law, you start seeing a thousand reasons why you shouldn't do anything. And, uh, <laughs> and the safest option is always to do nothing. And that's true. I mean, it's just clear that if you do nothing, it's very safe, but it doesn't make any changes. And I think that that's one of the concerns I have. You, you, I mean, when it was first suggested, and this was one of the opposite, it was suggested as that law evolved in the Northern Territory, they said that, look, this law could well be overturned by federal parliament and there could be some retrospective legal penalty visited on doctors who actually participated in the law. And I thought that was just a totally ludicrous notion. The, the Territory had passed a law, doctors could use that law and provide a lethal injection to a dying patient. The idea that in some time later the federal government would overturn that law and then start uh, prosecuting doctors who had participated in the law seemed ludicrous, and yet that particular, that particular threat really undermined. The reason I couldn't get a single doctor to come and see Max Bell in Darwin Hospital was the fear that was out there that if we do participate in this law, we might have to pay a price for it. Now... As it turned out, uh, that argument did undermine care. So all I can urge people to do is to be courageous and say a lot of these threats out there are just ludicrous threats and they are really quite meaningless. So the idea that one can really, one really should have to uh, sometimes take these risks. 
make change. Now, prior to this um, this chat this morning, I was having I had a quick chat with with your wife Fiona. She mentioned she brought me up to speed on your comedy career. <laughs> it was one yeah. of the things she said that when if if you were going to eventually be deregistered, that you were going to give it a crack. You mm. ultimately did. You were mm. true to your word in 2015, 16. Can you talk us through that? What? How did that go? Didn't go terribly well. Fully uh, <laughs> of evidence from here. To well, you got a few laughs today. I got a few. Yeah, that's right. No, it's hard. Well, it was. I, look, I always had the idea. It's one of those things you have in the back of your mind. That one of these days, it'd be nice to try. And I often wondered how difficult it might be. But I had the opportunity because a person contacted me saying she wanted to die uh, from uh, the UK, and I was talking to her, and it turned out. She was a relatively young person, and it turned out that she was she had been uh, she was quite ill, but that she was a comedian, and uh, she was in some form of remission at the stage, and she wanted to know more about her options about ending her life. But she, I said, "Oh, you're a comedian. I've always wanted to be a comedian." She said, "Well, she said uh, I've got a uh, session coming up here in Edinburgh, a comedy festival. Do you want to share the stage?" And I thought, "Hell, what a chance of a lifetime!" All right, we'll. Uh, We'll share the stage, perhaps, but it didn't turn out very easy. It didn't turn out very well at all because the particular condition she had, had was leading to massive, uh, massive hormonal disturbances, which meant huge mood swings, which hadn't exactly helped her comedy career, but it certainly didn't help our personal relationship. And it went <laughs> went from bad to worse. And sent about a day before we were about to start on stage, she walked out of the act, and suddenly I was confronted with instead of half an hour in what it was a very, very nice venue in Edinburgh, the Caves, which incidentally is, for those of you who know Edinburgh, the Caves is the underground area where Burke and Hare used to practice and drag corpses across to the Edinburgh Medical School. Very ideal for the session we had planned, uh, but she walked out. So suddenly I found myself with a full-hour session to try and uh, launch my comedy career. And we're for a month there, every night at 6 o'clock, I went to the Caves and delivered my little amusing uh, story about, uh, about the more amusing aspects of death and dying. The idea originally was that it would be a, a way of bringing the issue, I think, about euthanasia to a broader area, to younger people, to get them to think about the permanence and impermanence of life and death. But it, by hell, it's hard. It's a hard business being a comedian. Uh, and I must say, when I finally crawled out of it at the end of the month, I did one more at the Melbourne Comedy Festival uh, a few months later. Uh, and that was all right too, but I thought, okay, done that, now I'll leave that to those people that are best able to do it, and by hell, I've got the greatest respect for stand-up comedians. Perhaps one last question. Um, you've previously said publicly that, that um, when your own time eventually comes, that, and I'm probably paraphrasing a bit, so correct me if I'm, I'm getting it a little bit wrong, but the idea that, you, that the one thing you want to achieve is to have not, wasted, not lived a wasted life. Yeah. I just think, given everything that you've been through, everything you've sacrificed, everything that's been thrown at you, everything you've achieved along the way, where do you think you sit on that ledger? Where I think you sit on that on that ledger. Do you do you think you're achieving that? Oh, I don't, well, no. I think there's you always there's a lot of things I want to do. There's a lot of things I think I haven't been able to do, and I have uh, a desperate need to try and achieve. And one's well aware that life's finite, and that one's getting to the final stages of it. And I, look, I'm glad I've been able to do some things, but I'm disappointed that so many things didn't work out and I wasn't able to achieve it. I have my one final dream, not my one final dream, but the big dream is I want to get my Sarko euthanasia machine, uh, which is currently on display in the Venice Biennale, and it will soon, I get one, we'll have one in Australia, 
where you can lie back with elegance and style in the position you want overlooking Uluru or overlooking the Barrier Reef and press the button and it gives you that feeling that you're moving to the some new life. And so uh, I want to see that working and uh, that project is taking a lot of our time and a lot of our efforts over in the Netherlands right now. And uh, when that's done, then I think I will have felt that maybe it was a life worth living. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Philip. Thank you. Um, That was Philip Nitschke. Um, I hope you enjoyed our chat. Uh, I should also thank all of you who were in that session, who were putting up some really, really great questions for Philip. I, I know uh, we ended up missing a few. We didn't get to every single one, unfortunately. So apologies to anyone who put up a question and didn't uh, get a response. Um, perhaps uh, we might uh, be able to look at that, uh, some kind of follow-up perhaps, um, if, if um, Philip's available, if there's still the interest. Um, and in, in light of what's been going on in, in Victoria and, and WA, especially in recent months, um, that, that may be something uh, worth looking at. But um, in the meantime, though, as I said at the top, there are some really great episodes coming your way with the doctors I spoke to up on the Gold Coast, covering everything from careers in aviation, international aid, uh, defence, uh, and the light and dark sides uh, of working in the media as a doctor, and of course, our first doctor and magician. So uh, stay tuned for all that, some really great conversations. Um, this has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you again soon.